spent some time in God's Word, and tonight's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19 through to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Well, hello and good evening, everybody. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hope we're all going well. Uh, We're going to jump into this parable But before we do, I thought it'd be really helpful for us to know a little bit of context on who Jesus is actually talking to. And uh, if you have your Bibles there, which is always a good thing to do, to make sure that what I'm saying is actually here and not somewhere else. So I encourage you to um, have your phone out. If you've got your Bible app, don't go on Facebook. We know when you're on. No, we don't actually. Better be. <laughs> don't go on. Uh, but also, uh, I set a challenge to my son Tobias, who's up on slides tonight, uh, for this term to actually uh, come to church and to youth and bring his actual Bible and a notepad and take notes. That might be something you want to do. I'm a note taker. It helps me concentrate. It might help you too. But this passage that we're looking at tonight, the context of what is being said is spoken about back in verse 14 of the chapter where Jesus says these words he says the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus he said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but God knows your hearts what people value highly is detestable in God's sight and the reason why we start with that context is to understand that what Jesus is talking about here is a matter of our hearts There's a matter of who we are at our core and it has significant ramifications, not just in this life but in the life to come. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump into this chapter. Let's do that. Dear gracious God, we pray that as we dive into your word, Father, we pray that you would give us hearts and minds to understand. 
Father, pray that through your word and through your spirit that you would teach us tonight, that you would draw us closer to you. Father, that you would help us to examine our hearts and to realign ourselves to your ways. And Father, where my words fail, Father, may you speak even clearer through your spirit and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got this parable. We're doing parables. I actually quite enjoy parables because I love a good story. I love a good story because it helps solidify big ideas for me. So if you ever hear me talk about big ideas, it will always involve a story. So I love a good parable. And when we look at this parable, we have two characters. And it'd be good just to look at these two characters for a moment. And let's just do a bit of comparing and contrasting. Sounds very formal, doesn't it? Let's have a look at these two. We've got these two men. One, in verse, uh, verse 19 to, to 21, we see that there is one man who is rich. One, in verse 20, that's a beggar. One in 19 that is covered in fine clothes. And in verse 20, the other is covered in sores. Verse 19, one lives in luxury. Verse 21, one lives in great need. One had everything that he could ever want. The other had nothing. One ate, in verse 21, all the best foods. It's the idea of living in luxury while the other longed for just the scraps to fall off the table and onto the ground. One had the good life, one had the bad life. But they did have one thing in common. They both died. But after that, in verses uh, 25, we see one spends an eternity after death in agony and torment and the other in comfort in paradise. They're the two characters that we have. And as we go through, that seems like a real simple way to see uh, the difference between the two. But when we do that sort of contrast, we actually miss probably the most exceptional and most amazing difference between the two of them. Do you know what it is? You can feel free to yell it out if you, can, if you know, might know. One has a name. One has a name. You were here last night. <laughs> One has a name. And that's probably the most striking thing out of all these contrasts. One has a name and the other doesn't. Now you might go, well, maybe it's just an accident. Maybe it's not that big a detail. Maybe, Jai, you've just been spending too much time preparing the sermon and you're looking for, for little things that aren't there. Well, I want to say that it is a really big deal. It's a huge deal. Here's why. Every other illustration or parable that Jesus taught, every story he tells, no one really has a proper name except for this parable. There are the the parable of the sower, there are shepherds, there is a woman, there is a man, there is a Samaritan, there's this person, this person, but no one actually is given a proper name. So why is it such a big deal in this parable? Why is it such a big deal that one of the characters is given a name and the other is not? Well, the name Lazarus actually means God is my help. It's a 
pretty cool name. If you're thinking of baby names, Lazarus is not a bad name. God is my help. Actually, you don't see too many Lazaruses going around these days, do you? It's not a sort of a modern name, but it's got a great meaning. God is my help. The other one just has no name. And we see the reason why he's not given a name, verse 25, where we see this interaction between the rich man and Abraham. Where the rich man says, uh, as he's talking to Abraham, Abraham replies, he says, my son, you have your good things, or you had your good things. Now, what does that mean? Well, for centuries, philosophers and teachers and the great minds have been trying to figure out what is the ultimate good? What is the thing that we should all be living for? What is life all about? We make jokes about it. What is the meaning of life? And it is... I was waiting for someone to do a little quote there, but no one... 42, thank you. Uh. There's been this age-old request, this age-old thought of what is the ultimate thing to live for? Well, the rich man made his choice. He made a decision on what the ultimate good was, what the thing to live for was. And he had these good things. He had the good thing. He lived the good life. These good things were the things that he thought were his help, the things that he needed to get through life. And unlike Lazarus, who, as I said, whose name means God is my help, God is my good, my, my ultimate hope, this guy, he says, well, my good, my hope is all in my riches, my wealth, my status. He'd built his entire life on these things. And so what Jesus is teaching us at one point here is that the reason the rich man doesn't have a name is because that is all he is, a rich man. That is all that he is. He is either a rich man or he is a nothing man. He's built his entire life on his wealth so that when his wealth is gone, there is no one left. He has no identity because it is gone, it has been taken from him. If we build our life, though, on God, Jesus is teaching us that God is our identity. Now, what I'm talking about here, we're talking about identity, we're talking about um, to know who we are as an individual, to know that we are valued, that we are loved, that we are cared for, and to know where we are going. And here is the thing, if God is the source of everything that is in your life, that your identity is found in him and in him alone, well then, here's the great thing. It it doesn't matter what happens in your life. Whether you go through the ups and downs, whether you have things taken from you or you gain things, whatever the circumstances... There is always the same core, the same self, the same identity through it all. It does not get taken from you, no matter what we go through, no matter what affects us. We are always valuable and loved 
we know where we are going because we see God as our help and God is the one in whom we find our identity, not in anything of this world. And Jesus uses this man Lazarus as the great example of this because Lazarus had nothing yet he still had himself. He still had an identity in God. He had a name. Lazarus went through one of the most incredible changes of all time that we'll all go through at some point, which is leaving this life and going to the next. We call it death. The ultimate change. Yet, What is amazing in this story is that Lazarus doesn't change his name. His identity stays the same. He is still a child of God, one who has trusted in him as his help, who has put his identity in him and in him alone. But the rich man is different because he doesn't have a name, because he's built his entire identity on anything but God. And here's the thing for us tonight. If we build our identity on our career, on our children, on our spouse, on our relationships, on our grades, on our skills, on our talents, on our likability, whatever it might be, people's approval we are told that when we meet that final challenge of death and that identity is taken away from us it will not endure and we will lose it if we build our identity on anything but God and something comes in and jeopardizes that we're not just unhappy we actually find out that there is no more you. There is no more me. We are not just unhappy, but we lose our very self. The reason why Jesus is teaching this to the Pharisees and to us is so that we don't rely on ourselves, so we see God as our help, not as our self-help guru, which we like to do sometimes. Anna was talking about teaching scripture, and I'm sure that uh, she's experienced this as well. I remember in um, teaching uh, school in primary schools and talking to parents, and they love sending their kids to scripture in primary school because they feel that it'll help them get good morals. All right? So that they will have a good moral basis to build their life on in the way that they choose. That is seeing God as a self-help guru, not as God as your help for all things. When we trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and we trust in God, we find our identities caught up in him and nothing can shake that. And so the question for us tonight, before we move on, is do you have a name? Or are you just a successful person? Do you have a name or are you just a rich man or a rich woman? 
Do you have a name or are you just a father or a mother or a musician or a preacher or a businessman, labourer, student? Do you have a name or are you just one of those things? Because Jesus says that the answer to that question has eternal ramifications. So we see that if your name and your identity is caught up in the things of this world, then we struggle in life eternal. Have a look with me um, in verse 24, when we see this interaction of the rich man calling up to Abraham, where we see that the, the rich man is so still caught up in his identity and he doesn't realise it's now been stripped from him and he no longer has a name at all or an identity at all, he's still acting as though he's still a rich man. Hey, look, verse 24. He says, So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Do you hear the command there? The rich man is talking to Abraham and, and treating Lazarus as though he is still beneath him. To send is the idea that you would send a slave to do a task. And so this rich man is still looking up from hell into heaven and, and still seeing Lazarus as a slave to him, someone who's beneath him. There's more than that. Because what we find too is this rich man, as he is conversing with Abraham, is that he actually blames other people for his predicament. In verses 27 to 28, we see um, this where he says, He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will, also, uh, so they will not also come to this place of torment. See, here's the thing. This rich man understands that his brothers are living the same life that he is living. And he's saying, send Lazarus back to warn them because I didn't have enough warning. Send him back because I, I, I didn't know that this is what would come my way. Here's the thing. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says in verse 19, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This rich man has no excuse. He was forewarned through the prophets, through creation. God had made himself known. Yet how often are we like this when something goes wrong and we're quick to blame other people? So too, this rich man. But he even says, that, you know, because you haven't made yourself clear enough, yourself clear enough to me, make yourself so clear to my brothers, send Lazarus back. That will do it. Now, I don't know about you, if I saw a dead person, a person who I knew was dead, walking in the door, I don't know if the first response I would have is, oh, he's come to tell me about Jesus. 
They might be looking for some cameras, maybe. And then next thing I might be like thinking, well, I, I don't know what I'd be thinking. Is this a ghost or what's going on? It's pretty terrifying. In fact, Jesus actually um, did this with another Lazarus. Not this Lazarus, different Lazarus. In, um, in uh, John's Gospel, um, we actually hear in, um, in uh, chapter 12, verse 10, where after he's raised Lazarus from the dead, and instead of people going, oh, wow, this Jesus guy, he's got something going on, he must know what's go- what happens after death because he's Lazarus, we should listen to what Lazarus has to say. Again, different Lazarus. What do they do? Well, see, verse 10, instead of actually listening to him, what do they do? They try to kill him. They try to kill him. Friends, we have all that we need to know about what happens in this life and the next right here. We don't need a dead person to walk through the doors and tell us. Everything we need to know is right here. And you know what? You don't even need me to stand here and tell you about it. You can pick up one of these and read it for yourself. And hear the very words that God has said. The warning that is there. But there's one last thing I want to point out here in this conversation. And this is something that just has shocked me every time I read it. You notice there's one thing that he doesn't do, which I thought would have been the very first thing that he would do. Do you know what that is? Ask to get out. He doesn't ask to get out. He admits that he's in torment and in agony, and he doesn't say, hey, can you get me out of here? He doesn't say that at all. He never asks one for one moment. There is no request for forgiveness. This man, this rich man, I think doesn't ask because he is in the exact place that he actually wants to be. That sounds a bit shocking, doesn't it? Because we have probably grown up or we've conditioned ourselves or we have a thinking that it is God who sends people to hell. You heard that? God sends people to hell. That's the accusation against God and against Christianity, isn't it? God sends people to hell. It is God's fault. That's why I don't believe in God because why would I believe in this guy who says he's a loving God yet he still sends people to hell? Here's the thing. God doesn't send people to hell. He lets people go where they want to go. God doesn't force you or me or anybody to love him and to want to spend eternity with him. Again, in, um, in Romans chapter 1, it, it's probably one of the most clearest parts of the Bible about it. Where he says in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He says God gave them over. He doesn't send them. He says, you want to live this way? Go. I'm not going to stand in your way. You want to live as though you are God of your life. 
You want to live as though you are king of your life and that you know better than the creator of the universe? Go. I'm not going to hold you back. I'm not going to stop you. I've warned you. I've told you. But if you want to go, go. But we want to blame someone. We want to blame someone and say it's not their fault, it's God's fault. When really, when we get down to the brass tacks, it is God's actually stepping back and letting us, letting people go where they want to go, to be where they want to be, to live how they choose to live. And here's the thing, right? I don't know if it was like this when you were a kid, but as a kid and as a parent, I'm trying to teach my kids this, and I remember learning this as a a kid from my parents, is that everything you do, whether it's good or bad, every good or bad word, every good or bad action has a consequence to it. Sometimes good consequences, sometimes bad. But every action, every word has consequences. When God steps back and lets people go their own way, there is a consequence to that. And that is what God warns us about, is what Jesus is warning us about here. The problem is that we hear the consequence and go, I still want to go my way. And friends, that's what sin is. Sin is rejecting God. Saying, I hear your warning, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. I hear that uh, what you say I should do and how I should live, but I want to live my own way. I want to do my own thing. Life's too short. We get caught up and focused on the now and not what is to come. And then we start blaming God for other things. And that sin, that rejection and rebellion against God builds up and builds up and builds up. And it's a bit like this. It's a bit like, imagine um, I gave you a credit card and I said, go for it. It's yours. It's under your name. It's yours to use as you wish. And you go, sweet, free money. And you start buying everything. And all of a sudden, the card gets declined. And you realise that you've spent, I don't know, let's say 200000 I know you can't do that on a credit card, it's pretty good, but just like that it's happened, right? And you get a phone call from the bank and says, oh, you've, you've, uh, you've reached the $200,000 limit and uh, you, you need to start paying it back. And you're like, what? I've got to pay it back? I can't. How can I do that? Well, here's how it's going to happen. Is uh, you're going to go into bankruptcy. And what you're going to do is uh, we're going to sell all your assets and freeze your credit and you're going to spend, uh, look this up, it's three years and one day, I don't know what the one day is for, but three years and one day where uh, you really can't do much of anything besides the day-to-day things. Can't buy houses, go on big holidays, those sorts of things. But once you've done that, it's considered that you've paid off 
your dad or done your time and it's a fresh start. And there's a few other bits and pieces that I'm making it very condensed for tonight. <coughs> Friends, when it comes to our sin, there is no three-year cooling-off period. There is no selling up of assets. There is no waiting for three years and one day and then you get to start over fresh in heaven. Because our sin leaves us in such a debt that we can never pay it off. And here is how I know that. Have a look at verse 26. Where Abraham says that besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here, uh, go from here to you, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. No, long, no, no matter how long someone is in hell, they will never pay off their debt. You get that? An eternity in hell does not pay off our debt towards God. That is how big our debt is. We don't get to pay it off and then get taken up into heaven. We spend an eternity paying the consequence for our sin and rebellion and rejection of God forever. Forever and ever. Now, friends, there is good news. There is hope. Because even though the price to pay that debt is so great, so great that we can never pay it off, God sends his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay that debt for us. And for those of us who have accepted Christ for his death and resurrection, I want you to know this tonight. I want you to know how, value, how valuable and loved you are that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you to take your eternity of hell on his shoulders. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus on the cross, think about that. But not just your hell, but the hell for everyone who trusts in Jesus. The agony that Jesus experiences is far greater than we will ever know. The agony that Jesus faces on the cross is something so significant that we need to remind ourselves of it daily and not take it for granted. To put our identity in what has been done for us and to be reminded of who we are because of what he has done. When we do that, when we are reminded of this, we'll always remember how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians. And I know some of us from time to time feel like we are worthless, like we have no value, like we are insignificant. 
Friends, remind yourself of what Jesus did on the cross for you. To be reminded of that and to know that you are infinitely valuable. You are dearly and greatly loved. And you have great meaning and purpose because you have a name. A name that will last for all eternity. And so tonight in this parable that Jesus has taught, there are two people. The rich man, known only by his title, known for his wealth, known for the value of his achievements and his wealth. And then there is a man with a name, Lazarus, who knows no value of his achievement or wealth, but knows the great value of God in all things. Rich man, when he has everything taken from him, is left with nothing. When Lazarus has his life taken from him, he has everything. I want to finish with this question. If everything was taken from you tonight, your value, your achievement, your wealth, what would you be left with? Who would you be? Would you have a name? My prayer is that your name would be God is my help. Let me pray. Father, you know each of us by name. We know that our wealth is in your grace poured out for us in Christ. We know that our achievement are the things that have been done for us through your son, Jesus. We know that our value is in our new identity bought for us at such a great cost through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord God, you are our help. You are our good. You are our ultimate hope. May we know our name. And may we daily surrender to you. May we trust in you where you lead us. May we trust in you when we go through those moments when we are down and can't see you. And may we always praise you for your faithfulness to us. Amen.